Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Children of the night, come on into the cabin. It's been foggy and rainy around here these parts, but that's part of our spring, isn't it? It follows came on my radar from a review by Mark Frauenfelder at Boing Boing. The horror genre is represented poorly on the silver screen. Most movies are campy, terribly directed, or have a plot so full of holes you can drain your spaghetti with it. It Follows does maintain some of the traditions that seem to plague the campy films, such as a terrorized teenager who is being assaulted in her home, fleeing upstairs instead of outside. The actual mechanics and rules that the antagonist follows is so opaque to the viewer that it's hard to find holes with it. A mysterious, malevolent force that follows a cursed person until they are caught and then kills them. Where it came from or where it began is not explored in the film and is not relevant to the plot. It does remind me of a couple of my favorite horror films, The Ring and The Thing. The idea of a person who has some sort of curse that endangers all of those around them has an appeal to me. Of course, in The Thing, the cursed person is already gone, while in the other two movies they have a chance of protecting themselves by passing the buck on to someone else. Shoot locations, literary inclusions, and plot and direct dialogue all contribute to the central theme illustrated best in another story, by Captain Hook's crocodile, which symbolizes the inevitability of aging and death. Freudian ideals of libido are crystallized into the obvious face of the word libido, sex. The movie has a depth to it that you can skip over, but is quite present and quite deliberate. I'd very much recommend this movie. Not directly related to this film, but instead to the viewing of it. The theater that my wife and I screened the film also had a family with a 10- and 12-year-old in attendance. The theme of the film is a murderous spirit killing people who have sex. Don't let me tell you how to parent, but it's rated R for a very good reason. On a less serious note, the film, What We Do in the Shadows, is a bit more light-hearted, 
take on the vampires, werewolves, zombies, and witches that populate so many of our stories. We watched that, both enjoyed it, and had quite a few good laughs. It's based on New Zealand, so I'd be surprised if some of our New Zealander friends weren't somewhere nearby for this project. Matt Cowens, Dan Raybarts, I'm looking your way. We have two stories for you tonight. Both of them will be read by the same narrator, J.K. Shepler, so we'll be hearing a bit about him after both reads. So, stay tuned for that. First up will be Christopher Fowler's Oh, I Do Like to Be Beside the Seaside. Christopher Fowler is the award-winning author of over 30 novels and 12 short story collections, and the Bryant and May mystery novels, which record the adventures of two Golden Age detectives investigating impossible London crimes. His latest books are the sinister comedy thriller Plastic, the Bryant and May novel The Bleeding Heart, and the memoir Film Freak. Other recent works include a graphic novel, the casebook of Bryant and May, and a Hammer horror radio play under the Hammer Chillers label. He has a weekly column in The Independent on Sunday called Invisible Ink. Christopher was born in Greenwich, London. He attended Colf's, the London Leather Sellers Guild School, and after joined J. Walter Thompson as a copywriter. At the age of 26, he founded the Creative Partnership, a company that changed the face of UK and international film marketing and spent many years working in film, creating movie posters, trailers, and documentaries. And now, Christopher Fowler's Oh, I Do Like to Be Side, the Seaside. Toby pushed the nail deep inside the piece of bread, placed it in his steel catapult, and fired it high over the side of the pier. A seagull dropped from the steel-gray cloudscape, its yellow beak agape, and swallowed it. Choke, you fucker! Toby yelled. He turned to Harry. Got any more? That was the last one, said Harry. We're wasting our time. They can eat broken glass without dying. They've got special stomachs. What about barbed wire? Same. My dad's got some rat poison in the shed. He saved it from when he was in the military. They're not allowed to sell it in shops. Nah. Toby kicked at the railing until the chip of blue paint came off. Do you think the pier would burn? The one in Brighton burned. Let's get something to eat. He cast a cheated look back at the gull, which had alighted on a post further along the pier. It gave a healthy shriek as he passed. He threw a pebble at it and missed. The funfair was empty. A boy with Metallica tattoo across his shoulders was mopping patches of rainwater from the steel plates on the bumper car floor. Everyone teased him because the tattooist had spelled the band's name wrong, with two T's and one L. Oi, Damon, you want to be careful. You'll electrocute yourself, Toby called. Fuck off, Damon shouted back. It only works if you touch the ceiling. He raised his metal broom handle and thrashed the mesh above his head, spraying sparks, forgetting he had bare feet. Fuck! He hopped back and swung the broom at them. What a moron, Toby and Harry laughed together. Damon had ingested so many drugs during his clubbing years that he could barely remember his own name. They passed Gypsy Rosalie, the fortune teller, who was actually a secretary at Coal Bay Cooperative Funerals, making a bit of money on the side by building sales pitches for layaway burial plans into the predictions for her elderly clients. Once he had paid to have his palm read, and she told him he would go to the bad. "'You're not satisfied with your lot,' she had said, sitting back, folding her arms. You think you're too good for us. Lads like you always come unstuck. You're not a real fortune teller. I know enough to know someone living under a curse when I see one. She dug out his money and threw it back at him. Go on, fuck off. Now he skirted the helter-skelter, 
where rain had removed so much lubrication from the slide's runners that it was common to see someone getting off their mat halfway down and giving it a push. Ahead was the Big Dipper, that had been closed ever since a pair of toddlers were catapulted into the sea when their carriage braking system failed. Apparently, one of them was still in a coma. He hated the pier even more than he hated the rest of the town. Coal Bay. Population 17,650. Former fishing village was like a hundred other British seaside resorts, a byword for boredom. A destination that might have amused the Victorians, but was hopelessly outpaced by the expectations of modern day trippers who wanted something more than rip off amusements, a few chip shops, some knackered beach donkeys, and a floral clock. By day, sour faced couples huddled in shelters unwrapping sandwiches and opening thermos flasks. By night, every teenager in town was out in the back streets, getting piss and goading their friends into punch ups. Where the sea met the land, all hopes and ambitions were drawn away by the tide. Ahead, a bored girl was rolling garish pink spiderwebs of candy floss around a stick. Her name was Michelle, and she had originally planned to work on the fair on Saturdays until she could get away to London, but now she seemed to be on the pavilion pier every day. As she blankly swirled the stick, strands of reeking spun sugar flicked onto her bare midriff. "'What the fuck are you looking at?' she said, popping a pink bubble of gum at Toby. Why do you keep making that shit when you haven't got any customers? Toby stuck his finger in the tub and allowed sugar to cover it. It gets bunged up if I stop. We get flies in it in all sorts. The punters don't notice. I'm not going out with you, so don't ask. I wasn't going to. You're too old for me and you're getting fat. Anyway, I thought you were leaving Coal Bay and going to London. Changed my mind, didn't I? Went full time. It's easy work because there's no one here midweek. Boring, though. Not as boring as being in school, which is where you and your mouthy mate are supposed to be. Double games, period. We bunked off. We're going to see a horror film. The Living Dead thing? You don't need to watch a movie for that. Just hang around here. And you ain't gonna pass for 18, neither are you. The ticket guy goes out with my sister. If he doesn't let us in, I'll put the blocks on his chances. The first fat drops of rain spattered on the pier's floorboards. Go on, then. Take your grubby fingers out of my tub and fuck off to your film. Michelle tugged the striped awning of her stall, dismissing them. They ran back along the pier past pairs of shuffling pensioners in plastic rain hoods. They still had an hour to kill before the film started. The Punch and Judy man was on the beach, packing up his theatre. They called down as they passed. No show today, Stan? Fucking weather, Stan called back. I'll make the effort to stay open, but we had a gang of kids in earlier, right tearaways. The little bastards were making fun and chucking stuff. Puppets not good enough for them now at his video games. You should try putting in some new material, said Toby. I've tried that. Blue jokes, new songs. I'm Mr. Punch before my yodeling number, but the last time I tried it, I swallowed me swazzle. They headed up the promenade, where the old folks sat in a hotel greenhouse is trying to ripen like tomatoes. The air reeked of donut fat and seaside rock. Outside the Lord Nelson, a drunk fat girl in a tiny halter top was sitting on the curb, stoically attempting to be sick between her spread legs. Dudley Salterton was sitting on a bench outside the Crow's Nest Playhouse, looking more than ever like a tramp. He pulled the withered roller from his lips as the boys stopped before him and coughed hard, spitting a green globule onto the pavement. "'You all right, Dudley?' asked Toby. "'You got a piece of cigarette paper stuck on your lip. "'Fuck off, will you? I'm on in a minute. "'You're not on the panto, are you? I thought it started ages ago.' Toby looked up at the poster for Aladdin, which starred someone from Steps and a runner-up from Big Brother. 
Dudley was a resident compere at the Crow's Nest Variety Nights, filling in the gaps between acts with lame magic tricks and banter he had first used in the years after the war, half-heartedly updated to include jokes about modern TV personalities. Not that his elderly audience cared. They came to catch up with each other, to wave and eat and chat. They came because it was raining, because there was nothing else to do in Colbay on a wet Wednesday afternoon, because they were afraid of dying alone. Dudley was ancient and yellow with nicotine, but vanity required him to dye his hair and eyebrows a peculiar shade of chestnut. He never shaved properly, and had been living in a single room in a bed-and-breakfast joint on the front ever since his wife killed herself. He smelled of sweat, rolling tobacco, and old spice. I'm doing a guest spot on the second act because their comic got fired for always being pissed during rehearsals. But I told them I'm not doing it Chinese. I'll play it straight, thank you very much. I'll sing Windmills of Your Mind, do some newspaper tearing and balloon animals, let Barnacle Bill tell a couple of off-colour jokes, then I'm off over the Lord Nelson for a pint. Barnacle Bill was Dudley's ventriloquist dummy. Quite what he was doing in Aladdin was anyone's guess. With his lascivious wink, rolling eyes, peeling lips, dry, startled hair, the dummy tended to have a terrifying effect on children. Lately, Dudley had been dyeing his hair darker, and was starting to look more like the dummy than ever. Both had been at their peak of popularity during the war, and were soon to be shut up in boxes. "'What's it like being in Panto?' Harry asked. "'Fucking awful!' Widow Twonky went to prison for child molesting a few years back. How he got the job here, I'll never know. Must know someone on the council. It's not right. We have to get children up on stage and make them do a dance. Barnacle Bill shouted at one of them last week and the little fucker pissed himself. I gave his arm a right good pinch as he left the stage. It stinks up there. Do you get comps? I wouldn't bother. There's nobody in except a party of spastics from real and they're making a hell of a noise. I don't think they're getting any of the jokes. They're probably throwing shit at each other by now. You're not supposed to say spastics. Who fucking cares down here? It's not exactly the London Palladium, is it? Is there an orchestra? No. Eileen's on the piano and there's a bloke with a drum kit, but he's only got one arm. Shark, the lidamide. There's a wiggly little hand at the end. Gives me the creeps. Toby and Harry kept walking. They passed the rock shop where stretches of sickly peppermint folded back and forth on metal spindles like elasticated innards. The window was filled with edible novelty items. Giant false teeth, bacon and eggs, an outsized baby stunny, a bright pink penis. Behind the counter, an enormously fat girl in hoop earrings and a tiny, skin-tight top stared at them as if she was wondering how they might taste. At the next corner, four old people stood watching while a fifth attempted to park his car. The car was small and the space was huge, but the driver managed to hit both the vehicle behind and the one in front several times over. The pensioner stood there watching, without offering any advice or help. Finally, the car was parked two feet from the curb, and the group crept on, their excitement over. You know that Morrissey song, Every Day is Like Sunday? asked Harry. Do you think he wrote it about Coal Bay? What, the coastal town they forgot to close down? Yeah, probably. How much longer? Harry checked his mobile. Forty-five minutes. Want to go in the fun fair? Not really, but we're here now. They walked in beneath the broken-coloured bulbs of the Colbay Cursal and headed for the ghost train. The Cursal used to be called Funland, but the council changed the name after too many accidents gave the place a bad reputation. The ghost train's plywood frontage had been painted with crude copies of Scooby-Doo characters, along with some skeletons and demons cribbed from old Marvel comics. From within came a shriek of unoiled metal and a wail like a ghost calling through a hooter. 
Toby and Harry bypassed the deserted ticket counter. Charlene, the girl who worked there, was round the back having a fag and flicked on the power as they passed the ride's main junction box. Jumping into the first narrow carriage, they rolled off, banging through the doors into darkness. An acrid tang of electricity and damp cloth filled their nostrils. The car twisted about on its miniature track, its wheels crackling with errant voltage as they passed a dummy of Dracula that looked more like a leprous orchestra conductor. "'So are you in?' Toby shouted as they jutted around the day-glow graveyard. "'It's up to you,' said Harry, who always followed Toby's instructions. "'I guess so. Are we really going to the pictures?' "'No, of course not. Go home and get your stuff, then meet me at the arcade.' "'That was it.' Toby's mind was made up. Harry felt a pitch in his stomach and knew it was real now. They would run away and leave this miserable cemetery behind for good. When the ghost train carriage returned to its station at the front of the ride, it was empty. Harry knew what he had to do. He ran back along the street toward his parents' house. Meanwhile, Toby walked into the Paradise Penny Arcade. He passed the old man, who spent his life rhythmically shoveling coins into the penny rapids, passed the skee-ball slides, the driving test, the flicker-ball slots, and came up against the creepy, jolly jack tar in its wooden case. The damned thing was a museum piece, and had been giving him nightmares ever since he was a baby. Its skin was just plaster, its rictus smile mere painted wood, but it looked leathery and cancerous like an embalmed corpse. When a tenpence piece was inserted, it rocked back and forth, squealing with laughter, while a crackly organ recording of I Do Like to Be Beside the Seaside played. The sailor grinned and eyed him from the side of its head, as if to say, I know what you're up to. He carried on past banks of beeping, squealing money-stealers and jerky out-of-date video games to the change booth. He knocked on the scratch, filled the glass, startling Winfrey. Fuck off, Toby, you nearly gave me a fucking heart attack, Winfrey complained, wiping mustard pickle from his T-shirt. He set down a sandwich and stared blearily through the glass. He had a red spiderweb tattooed across his forehead and had several teeth missing, so that at first glance it looked as if he had fallen through a plate glass window. What do you want? What time are you cashing up? My shift ends in twenty minutes, but Michelle can't get here until half past. You gonna mind the booth for me? What's it worth? I'll give you a quid. If you're gonna hang around, don't fuck up the machines with plastic. Yeah, all right. I'm waiting for Harry anyway. He made his way over to a one-armed bandit, watched until Winfrey his back turned and inserted a coin-shaped piece of plastic into the slot. He waited for the tumblers to trip, then removed it. While he was playing, he checked the railway timetable in his pocket. He became aware that a gigantic woman was standing beside him. She looked like something from a seaside postcard. She was wearing a red and white spotted cap the size of a Christmas pudding above a shiny purple wig, a billowing green and yellow gown with metal saucepans fixed over breasts like beach balls, Union Jack bloomers and striped leggings. She pursed bee-sting lips and batted her false eyelashes at him. Her doughy face was coated in Belisha beacon-coloured makeup that ended in a line across her wobbly chin. "'I hope you're not trying to cheat the machines, little boy,' she said in a bizarre falsetto. Toby turned to look at her. "'Who are you supposed to be?' He took an involuntary step back. "'I'm the widow. All the little boys and girls come to see me. Haven't you been to see me?' Widow Tonky fluttered and simpered, waggling her padded hips. She had come off stage between numbers to have a couple of ciggies and a few slugs of scotch from her hip flask. Aladdin singing his ballad, who drag it out for twenty minutes at least. Think someone from the telly will spot him and make him a star. Fat fucking chance. Tonky's voice had dropped to a normal male register now, but still retained an unpleasantly theatrical sibilance. Show me what you've got in your hand. Pudgy beringed fingers slapped his knuckles. Toby opened his fist to reveal the plastic coin. Perhaps I should tell her Winfrey what you're up to, stealing his money. 
No, don't. Then come and give your old auntie a kiss. You're not my auntie. No, but you can fucking pretend for a minute unless you want Winfrey to call the cops on you. The widow came close enough for Toby to smell whiskey on her breath. She wetly pursed her lips. Toby grimaced and allowed her to plant a kiss on his cheek. As she did so, she slid her hand over the top of his right thigh and the crotch of his jeans. You've got some good muscles on you for a young'un, she hissed, giving his cock a squeeze. Big for your age. Come and see Matron after the show and I'll take you backstage if you like. I'll keep special presents there for my favourite boys and girls back there. The widow gave a slow, exaggerated wink and released him. Now run along and play. Harry, running in with the duffel bag, was holding an eye. I've got it, he said excitedly as the pantomime dame sailed past him. For Christ's sake, stop waving it around. Toby snatched it away and pulled him into the shadows behind the machines beyond the range of Winfrey's convex ceiling mirrors. He opened the bag and checked its contents. It belonged to my brother. Do you know how it works? Of course I know. Give me a minute, will you? I brought you something else as well. It's at the bottom. Toby pulled up a rusty tin and examined the label. It read, Government issue Imperial brand rodent exterminator. Caution. Contains Wolverine and caustic soda. How old is this? Really old, but it should still work on seagulls. Are we going back to the pier to try it out? No, said Toby. We're never going back on the pier. Never, but I thought we could kill loads of them before we left. Toby ignored him. He pocketed the items he needed and passed the bag back to Harry. Come on. Stepping from the shadows, he made his way over to Winfrey's booth. Winfrey was picking his way through a pile of filthy ten-pound notes that had been softening with overhandling. As soon as he saw the boy, he snapped the red rubber band around the bundle and slid it into his bank bag. Winfrey's taking at the arcade weren't high, but his lad sold amphetamines around town and used him to launder cash for a cut. If you want to get off, I'll cover for you, said Toby. Hang on, I haven't finished my tea yet. Behind them, Harry was banging on the penny falls to make coins slip from the steel shelves. Oh, you little fucker! Winfrey shouted, fumbling his way out of the booth. Toby slipped inside and pulled the lid off the rusty tin Harry had brought along. He thrust his hand into the white powder, emptying as much as he could into Winfrey's tea, which reeked of whiskey. The powder went everywhere, but he managed to blow it off the counter and wipe the rim of the mug before Winfrey came back. The cashier grabbed his nylon jacket and pulled it over his shoulders. Your little pal's going to get in trouble and end up inside like his brother, he warned. Fucking rubbish, the whole family. As Winfrey drank down his tea, Toby watched blankly, wondering if he could taste any difference. Apparently not. He couldn't imagine the cashier had any taste buds left, given the amount he drank. Winfrey drained his mug completely, leaving a rhyme of white powder around his cracked lips. Toby retreated to the far side of the arcade, keeping one eye on the booth. Unbelievable, he muttered. He can't even taste rat poison. I'll put half the pot in. Harry hadn't heard. He'd been hypnotized by a two-pound coin that was hovering on the edge of a narrow metal platform in the coin cascade machine. Toby craned back at the booth, watching for signs of pain and death. Hello, Toby. He whirled around to find Michelle standing beside him. I thought you two were off to the flicks. There's still time. You're early. I was looking for you. I now know you're up to something, both of you. I don't know what you mean. Don't fuck me about. You're going somewhere. You're getting out. Who said that? I hear everything that's going on. Take me with you. What? Take me with you? I have to leave this place, Toby. I'm going metal. I can't stay here anymore. I can't even go home because of my folks. He looked at her bare midriff. Aren't you cold? I'm trying to get air on it. My belly button ring went septic. Of course I'm not cold. I'm never cold anymore. I'm fucking pregnant. I didn't know. She looked at the sky, blinking. That's a surprise everyone else in this shithole town does. Who's the father? What am I, psychic? Maybe I should go ask to Gypsy Rosalie. 
She shifted her weight on the other foot and looked at him with desperation in her eyes. So what do you think? Can I come? I can't, Michelle, especially not if you're pregnant. But you and Harry are going. I'm not taking Harry with me. Does he know that? No, I just decided. But you can't leave him behind. He worships you. What's he going to do without you? She peered over at the booth. Shit, what's wrong with Winfrey? Toby looked around and saw Winfrey's face pressed hard against the glass, as if he was trying to force his way through it. He was drooling and spitting, grinding his forehead. Stay here a second, he said, panicked, and ran over to the booth as Harry picked up that something was wrong and followed after him. Toby knew exactly where to kick the booth door to open it. Winfrey had thrown up over himself the counter that till his paperwork. He must have eaten a couple of pizzas earlier because everything was red. He clutched feebly at Toby as the boy tore the bank bag from his grip and popped it open. The takings weren't inside. Where's the money? Toby asked. My guts are killing me. Winfrey spat again. Give me a hand outside. The takings, they're gone. No, I gave them to Eddie to bank for me. Eddie, who's Eddie? The widow, Widow Twonky. He coughed and licked at his lips, wiping up the remains of the powder. Dark blood leaked over his lower teeth onto his T-shirt. He tried to stand and slip from his stool. There was a terrible smell. Winfrey had sold himself. What are you doing, Michelle called. What's going on? But before she could reach them, Toby had grabbed Harry's hand and was dragging him away towards the exit. The boys found themselves in the stinking, trash-filled alleyway behind the arcade that was meant to be kept clear in case of fire. Toby, you're taking me with you, aren't you? Harry asked anxiously. I can't. You're too young. You get us caught. I'm only two years younger than you. I'm sorry, mate. You said I could come with you. Listen. Toby stomped in the alley and squeezed his eyes shut, not turning around. You can't come because I don't want you with me. You're just a kid. You'd be a drag on my style, all right? Go home. But Toby, look, just fuck off, will you? He bit his cheek, waiting and listening, refusing to turn. He heard a whimper like a dog being kicked, followed by footsteps stamping away. Part of his heart went with Harry. He pushed open the unguarded fire door of the Crow's Nest Theatre and climbed the concrete steps in darkness. The show had finished. He had seen the clusters of homebound children drifting past the arcade. The building smelled of fresh-cut wood, cheap-scent mildew. He followed the only light source to another short staircase and found himself in the backstage area. Passing between the flats of Wishy-Washy's laundry house, he entered an artificial forest that owed more to the Sussex Downs than the China Steps. There you are, you little scamp, trod Widow Twonky. She was sitting on a giant polystyrene toadstool, leisurely smoking a cigarette. She wore a hat with a miniature line of Union Jack knickers suspended across it. This is the only time I can bear this fucking place when the tinies have all fucked off home. It's the screaming that does my head in. It sounds like pigs being slaughtered in here some afternoons. Toby looked about. A backpack sat beside the widow's stocking right ankle. The dame was studying the glowing tip of her cigarette. I suppose you've come for your gift. Why are you still in that outfit? Aladdin's fucking Cinderella in my dressing room. Well, she's the Emperor of China's daughter in this production. But if she thinks she's doing Cinderella at Christmas, she's another thought coming. The bitch couldn't carry a note in a bucket. Besides, he hitched up his bosom. I like being in drag. It's a good place to hide. Twonky rose to his feet. Christ, my knees are fucking killing me. Come on, then, let's go to Alibaba's cave. She sailed back into the darkened area of the stage. Toby followed and found himself surrounded by a plywood treasure chest filled with gold-painted... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com plastic trinkets as if the genie's fabled cavern had fallen on hard times and been reduced to a pound store. Winfrey lent us this lot from his arcade, what a load of shit. The dame plucked herself down on a stack of money bags marked with cartoon dollar signs. Come here, want to see what the widow's got for you? Twonky pulled them close and began fumbling in her red, white and blue bloomers. Toby pulled the gun from his pocket, took aim and shot the dame in the balls. It wasn't a very powerful weapon and made hardly any noise, but Twonky released an incredible scream, so Toby made sure to aim the next shot into his mouth, which shut her up. Her purple wig skewed over her left ear, revealing a sweaty bald pate. She thrust about on the money bags, spitting crimson teeth, her pudgy fingers digging into the bloody patch between her legs. Toby emptied the remainder of the clip into her stomach and face, then snatched up the backpack and checked its contents. The money was inside. The dame had torn down his Union Jack bloomers and was just scrabbling blindly at his flopping scarlet cock, as if trying to recover his original identity in his dying moments. Toby crashed out of the stage door and passed the rear of the arcade. It was raining in hard squalls as he emerged from the end of the alley and dashed across the empty road, heading toward the station. The promenade was completely deserted now, the pier lost behind grey skeins of rain. The only living thing in sight was a single bedraggled donkey on the beach, tethered and facing stupidly into the downpour. He swung his arm high and threw the gun far into the grey sea. The train to London was due to leave in just over seven minutes. In London, no one would ever find him. There he could be anyone he wanted to be. He increased his speed, but the pavement was dangerously slick and he did not want to risk a fall. The town would try any old trick to keep him back. He was getting soaked. Ahead he could just make out an odd figure approaching in the downpour. There was something about it he recognised. It was short and stumpy, and was walking as if it had broken its legs. At first he thought Harry had come after him. But as its appearance became more defined, Toby's thumping heart rose in his chest. The thing crystallised from within the hammering clouds of rain, and he saw now that it was a truncated sailor the size of a child dressed in navy blue, its hands flapping uselessly at its sides, its knees rising and falling like a puppet's. The peals of recorded laughter grew louder as it approached. It rocked from side to side and rolled its eyes. The offer Edwardian seaside song warped and wavered through blast of wind as it ran faster towards him. The music was distorted in its sinister now, less a celebration of holiday pleasure than a Satanist chant. 
The jolly Jack Tar slammed into Toby, winding him, sending him to his knees. As it threw its arms around his neck, he felt wood through coarse material, then realized that its wooden limbs were held together with wires that were cutting into his skin. He could feel them in its fingertips as it tightened its embrace, digging into his flesh. The dummy's eyes rolled and its grin widened. It rocked back and forth, knocking against Toby's head with a look that said, I told you so. It was a museum piece, a doll, nothing more. But how like a living thing it was, filled with ancient sea wisdom, preserved and trapped in a glass case for the amusement of others. Toby rolled over onto his side, the dummy clinging tight, then tighter still. He dropped the bag as its death grip stopped his breath, and the wires from its wooden fingers jammed into his chest as if trying to worm their way into his heart. It bit him with a strangely flat wooden mouth, but bit down hard and could not be dislodged. And he knew he was destined to fall and remain here, beside the seaside, beside the sea. "'Fuck off, Jack!' wheezed Toby. "'You're not even alive! You belong here!' "'So do you,' said Jolly Jack Tar. His last clear sight was across the desolate beach to the tethered donkey, standing stoically in the rain, doomed like the rest of them, in the arcades and ticket booths, in the filthy glass cases and crumbling beach shelters, to live out its days at the end of the land. That was Christopher Fowler's Oh, I Do Like to Beside the Seaside, as read to us by J.K. Shepler. Our second story will be read by Mr. Shepler as well, so stay tuned for a bit of info about him. Next up will be Stuart Horne's Filmland. Stuart Horne is a professional musician based in Glasgow, Scotland. He has had a passion for horror since childhood, but has only recently started to share his own fiction with the world. He enjoys contrasting dark subject matter with the dryly humorous delivery typical of Glasgowians. I know, the name sounds a bit grand, and you're probably expecting a big shiny story about movie stars and stuff, but it's just the place I work. Filmland used to just be a DVD rental shop, but there's no money in that anymore, so Dave, the owner, flung out a few racks and put a wee cafe at the back, so it's managed to keep going for now. As jobs go, it's alright. I'll do the back shift Tuesday through Sunday. I get to take home any DVDs that are still in the shop at closing time, and it's certainly not what you call demanding. Most days I get up fairly early, never much past noon, and I drink coffee and slob around. Maybe watch a movie or go online for a bit. I call myself Famous Monster online. Anyway, I start work at half three. That's round about when the teachers come in for their fix of senseless violence. Then there's another wee rush of office workers, always wanting the newest thing. Then it tails off. After Alice and the Day Girl goes home at six, it's just me and my regulars. You'll have heard of guys called Babe Magnets. Well, I'm a nerd magnet. If any of you ladies have a thing for kind of chubby guys with bad personal hygiene and underdeveloped social skills, come into my shop between 7 and 9 or so any weeknight. There's always a good selection. It's like that Islamic heaven with the 72 virgins if Allah had a sense of humour. My job is to talk to the guys they think they have lives, serve them microwave pizzas and cans of diet fizzy pish, and let them try to outgeek me on obscure movie trivia. Every so often, one of them will rent a movie, but that's not really why they come in. Anyway, this thing that happened, the thing I need to tell you about, it was a Tuesday. Tuesdays are always dead, 
So I usually dust the shelves and put all the covers back in the right places because the punters are crap at that. And sometimes I'll even put a movie on for the last couple of hours instead of those trailer discs we're meant to show all day. So it's quite late, after ten anyway, and this gal comes in, small, dark hair, smartly dressed, by herself. That's unusual, by the way. Guys quite often come in on their own, but girls are always either half a couple or one of a flock. I've thought before someone could do a PhD on social and cultural norms based on gender behaviour and video rental shops. I would do it myself, but I'd have to go back to uni and finish my degree first. And I'd probably rather be ripped apart by cannibals. So anyway, I was watching an early Argento movie, one of his giallos, when this lassie came in. I gave her my standard complimentary nod-smile combo from behind the counter and went back to watching the screen. But she came right up to the counter. Excuse me, she said, earning smile number two, my more attentive and making eye contact version. Hi, what you after? I asked. She was smiling back, but one of my special powers is trouble radar, and something in her face right then was causing a big red blip on my screen. Do you have a telephone I could use? I'm very sorry to bother you, but it's rather urgent. Sorry, no. Even I'm not allowed to use a shop phone. I really was sorry. Her smile was as thin and brittle as ice. I thought if it broke she might burst into tears, or possibly try to gouge my eyes out. There's a payphone across the road there. She looked over her shoulder at the dark street through the shop window, then back at me. This is something of an emergency. I can give you some money for the call. The smile was still there, but wrong. The eyes were too wide or something, and the red blip on my radar was flashing faster than ever. Tell you what, I said when I couldn't stand it any longer. You can use my mobile, if it's... I fished it out of my jeans. Thank you, she said. She grabbed it like she was drowning and I'd thrown her a rope. So long as you're not phoning Australia or something, I've not got very much credit. She ignored that, turned away and made a call. And I heard snippets of a conversation while still half watching my movie. On the screen, a blonde woman in evening dress was being menaced by an invisible assailant in black leather clothes. Me. Video shop. On Glasgow Road. I glanced from the screen to the girl and noticed that her jacket was a bit ripped. One sleeve was coming off. It was disconcerting because she was otherwise so neat. Yes. Mobile. The black glove killer had a hand on the woman's neck now and a shiny knife flashed into shot. I suddenly didn't want to watch it anymore and I fumbled for the remote. Saw him. Okay. Here. She turned back and handed me the phone just as I managed to stop the movie. Thank you very much. I'll browse for a while. No bother. Aye, right. I was bothered as fuck. I wanted this maniac out of the shop and back to whatever soap opera she lived in right now. I even thought about calling Dave, the guy who owns the shop. But what would I say? Oh, hi, Dave. It's Charlie. There's a girl in the shop. She's browsing the racks and I'm scared. So I sat and bit my nails and waited for it to be closing time so I would have an excuse to make her leave. There was only about 14 and one quarter minutes to go when the door opened again and this massive guy came in. I mean properly massive. He had to duck and turn sideways to get through the door. This time I could have felt justified calling Dave and saying, There's a fucking troll in the shop, what do I do? The troll scanned the shop in a moment, taking in the girl, the racks, the counter and me cowering behind it. 
I was certain there was trouble coming, and I'd already decided they were welcome to all the DVDs, the money in the till, and our entire stock of butterkist. But she just ran up and gave him a hug. If I'd been the guy throwing the rope, he was the life raft, a pretty big one too, like a thirty-seater. There was a whispered conversation and the giant glanced over at me again. A moment later he was walking toward me and my trouble radar screen exploded. It was like having a dinosaur bearing down on me, albeit one in a large, nicely tailored suit. We appreciate your assistance, he said, his voice surprisingly soft. However, I think he paused here deliberately to let me worry about what he might say next. My best guess was, you've seen our faces so I'm afraid I'll have to kill you, sorry. Instead, he said, You've not seen us. We've not been in this shop or this area of the city at all. I cannot see a security camera. Is it hidden somewhere? There isn't one, I said before having time to think about what the fuck I was saying. I did have enough time to call Dave a cheapskate bastard in my mind, though. Good, he said. He'd laid a hand on the counter and I felt my eye drawn to it. It could have fit around my head and probably squashed it like a rotten apple. Forget us and you'll never see us again. Tell me you understand. I understand. He looked me up and down, and I thought perhaps he hadn't quite made up his mind about me yet. He all but opened my mouth to examine my teeth. By now, the girl had crept up behind him and was watching with interest. All her anxiety seemed to have vanished. Lucky bitch. Eventually, he nodded, looked me in the eye. Good, he said again, and turned to leave. The girl gave me a more relaxed and sympathetic smile than she'd managed earlier, the way you might smile at someone who's just survived a really bad car crash. Then she followed Gigantor out the front door. I sat behind the counter for ages after they'd gone, staring at the glass door and the big windows either side. Through the glass I could see across the street to the railway station and the other shops all closed, nothing looking real in the streetlights. There were no people. Only a couple of cars went past in however long I sat there in my little bubble of light. I knew I had to lock up and go home, but the darkness outside seemed to be staring back at me, daring me to get closer. After an age, I felt my muscles begin to unknot themselves, and only then realised how tense I had been. Even though now I tell it, at that point nothing had actually happened. I took a deep breath, stood up, and walked around the counter, taking the keys out of my pocket as I went. I walked toward the door... Keys held in front of me like a talisman, but stopped again a couple of feet away. All I had to do was reach out, insert the key and turn it, and everything would be okay again. But I had this vision of a clawed hand bursting through the glass and grabbing my wrist if I got close enough to let it. I don't know how long I stood there, staring into that darkness, but finally I thrust the key in and turned it as quickly as I could. It stuck a little, as it often did, and I felt the panic rise before the lock clicked into place. At that moment, somebody ran past the window, impossibly fast and inches from the glass, and I nearly shat my pants. Fuck, I shouted, jumping backwards. Jesus, fuck! I breathed hard, swore again, and smiled at myself. He'd given me a hell of a fright, but just seeing another human being had broken the spell, brought me back to reality. I even imagined the jolly conversation we would have if I left the shop and saw him standing at the bus stop. You won't believe how big a fright I got when you ran past the shop. Sorry, man, I thought there was a bus coming. No worries, I was just locking the door when you whizzed by me nearly shit myself. LOL. I finished locking up and did my final check round routine, all the time talking to myself, mainly telling myself what a diddy I was for getting so worked up over nothing. Even so, I was still tense when I left the shop. 
I looked around the dark and deserted street before locking the door again from the outside and pulling down the shutters. I looked around some more as I started the short walk home, and I'm pretty sure I glanced over my shoulder a few times on the way. There are two little alleys I have to pass, and I'm always a bit wary of them, even though the crime rate in this part of town's almost zero. Tonight I kept my eyes firmly ahead as I passed them, but looked behind me again afterwards just in case. My close has eight flats in it, two on each of the four floors. I live in a one-bedroom flat on the second top floor, and I have no idea who my neighbours are. It's a good setup. It suits my personality. When I opened the door of the close that night, I thought there was a funny smell. I couldn't place it, though my first thought was that someone's dog had crapped in the close. It was that kind of smell, but not exactly right. It got stronger as I went up the stairs and I started to get more subtle notes in it. Still with the essence of shite dominating though. By the time I reached my floor it was strong enough to make me gag. With still no indication of where it might be coming from. I was about to go into my flat and forget all about it when I heard a noise from the next floor up. It was a kind of heavy and ragged breathing. I guess my upstairs neighbour was too drunk to get into his flat and had passed out in the landing and most likely shit himself. I stood undecided for a moment then headed upstairs to see if I could help. All right up there, I called starting to climb the last flight. There were noises from above. Something like a pig grunting. Something heavy moving or being moved. A slamming door. Silence. I turned on the half landing and looked up the last few steps. At first I just thought how red everything was. It looked like Jackson Pollock had done an installation in the clothes but only remembered to bring red paint. Despite the sick sinking feeling in my gut, I walked up a few more steps, shoes sticking to the stairs. And I could see that the red stuff wasn't all liquid. There were bits scattered about, little grisly things like a butcher's discards. I stopped a couple of steps from the top and saw a bloody trail leading across the landing and vanishing underneath the door on my right. I stared at the door, made of a simple panelled wood, so normal, familiar and innocent, apart from the stains. Among the rest of the mess, the one object that caught my eye, the biggest, the most easily identifiable, and the one that has stuck in my brain like a cancer, was the hand. It looked fake, something you might buy in a joke shop at Halloween, with its ripped flesh, protruding shards of splintered bone, and unrealistic red stains. Mainly, it didn't look as if it could be real, because it was too big. I thought of the hand that had lain on the counter in my shop less than an hour before, attached to the unassailable man-mountain I had been so afraid of. I stared at the hand and everything else, my mind buckling under the weight of carnage, trying to make sense of it all but overloaded. I'm not known for my quick decision-making, or quick anything for that matter, so I might have stood there all night if nothing else had happened. But then there was a noise from behind the door. I've no idea what the noise was. Maybe I never knew, or maybe the memory got lost among all the other stuff. Whether it was the noise, the hand, or just the sight of the door, I turned tail and ran like fuck. I ran as if every demon of hell was chasing me. I sprinted down the stairs, past my own door, and onwards and downwards. I almost screamed when I heard a mighty crash from above. Something like a sound a door makes when something big and scary charges through it and reduces it to kindling. A moment later, I was back out in the empty night, headed nowhere in particular except away from that building as fast as I could, not looking behind me even when I heard a howl. I'm not joking. A fucking proper horror movie howl. 
The kind that's too cliché to be scary on screen, but bowel-looseningly effective in real life. I didn't slow down when the inevitable stage kicked in, or when my legs started to ache, or when my lungs felt as though they were on fire, and definitely not when I heard something closing behind me. It was close enough that I could hear it breathe, hear its pads on the tarmac, hear a growl start to build in its throat. I closed my eyes, still running. Tripped over a pavement and sprawled on my belly, rolling and scraping and leaving a trail of skin and blood. The thing behind me had pounced at that same moment, and it flew right over me, close enough for me to smell it and feel the heat of it, and I heard it land heavily in front of me. I couldn't scream, or beg, or move. Even breathing was hard work. Every part of me hurt, and I remember thinking, fuck it, just eat me then. I managed to lift my head and saw it for the first time as it slowed and turned to face me. If I had expected a giant wolf, I wasn't that far off the mark. It was more like the shape of a hyena, but the size of a rhino and absolutely black, apart from the eyes, which were an anachronistic baby blue. It didn't seem in such a hurry now that I'd given up running, and it raised its massive head and howled. That sound, up close like that, was the most terrifying thing I'd ever experienced. It felt like freezing hands suddenly clutching my kidneys, searing through centuries of civilization and speaking directly to the part of me that used to hide in the forest and dread the stench of the carnivore. Even the sight of the beast itself as it padded toward me was an anticlimax. I knew I was going to die and expected that I would hurt. I only hoped it wouldn't take long and the thing wouldn't howl again till I was properly dead and wouldn't hear it. It was almost on me, blue eyes locked on mine, when it vanished. Then there was a crunching noise from somewhere to my left. I turned to look and saw it clumsily getting to its feet. It had apparently been thrown against the brick wall. I looked round to see what could have done it, but there was nothing obvious, till a flash of something whizzed past me and slammed into the beast again. This time it didn't hit the wall but was thrown at least 30 feet down the street, rolling and grunting as it landed. Let's see how you like it, dickhead, I thought. Then miraculously, the girl from the shop was standing in front of me. She grabbed me by the jacket and lifted me to my feet like I was four years old. I'm quite chunky. She must have been stronger than she looked. Are you hurt? she asked. I couldn't answer because I didn't know yet. I was busy adjusting my definition of hurt. My limbs were all still attached, and when she let me go, I didn't fall down. Scraped and bleeding didn't count. Over her shoulder, I saw the creature get up and start moving again. I made a noise and pointed. She looked behind her and back at me. Don't go away, she said. She accelerated like a rocket toward the staggering beast and hit like a cannonball, driving it into another wall with a crunch that must have been some bones, probably a skull. I finally found my voice. Fuck me, I said. Sorry about that, she said beside me again. He's not supposed to be here. He's not supposed to fucking exist, I said, still watching the now inert creature in case it got up again. She checked me over, lifting my arms to look underneath. For the second time that night, I felt like a bullet market. You're fine, she announced. You should go to the police now. Not to, it seems suspicious. She looked me straight in the eye. You still haven't seen us, though, remember? I haven't seen a fucking thing. What was that thing I just didn't see? And who the fuck are you? She rolled her eyes. Plebs are so nosy these days. Would have just let me eat you if it wasn't for the paperwork. Now listen carefully. You saw the mess in your clothes, panicked and ran away. 
When you had calmed down enough, you went to the police station to report it. Nothing else happened. When she said it, it sounded true. I almost believed it. What happened to the big guy? I asked the guy from the shop. Nobody came into your shop tonight. She was smiling now. I was well out of my depth and gave in. Oh, I, I forgot. Then she was gone, and so was the black thing that had tried to eat me. I fell back into my normal mode, indecision and inaction for a while, then went to the police. I'm not sure what I told them. Well, they kept me in and asked me a lot of questions I couldn't answer. Days later, when they'd finally decided I was innocent, they sent me to a hotel until my flat was fit for use again. I don't know what they did with it, but it was a hell of a mess when I got back. That was last week. Now, I don't feel safe in the shop when it gets dark and the street is quiet. Outside the glass door and big windows, I imagine people, things, hunting each other. Only that fragile film of glass keeping them from all us normals. I get twitchy, walking home, and I never, ever turn my head and look behind me. At home I don't sleep, but lie staring at the ceiling knowing that anything, anything could be on the other side of those few inches of wood and plaster. I've been applying for other jobs, and I'm going to move into town where it's never properly deserted like it is here. There are images that haunt me both awake and asleep, and I keep thinking, if there's some kind of war going on, am I in it? Have I taken sides? That was Stuart Horne's Filmland, as read to us by J.K. Shepler. Jedediah Kalanu Shepler was born in Texas. He spent formative years in Northern California, then returned to Texas to get an honors degree, summa cum laude, in anthropology from the University of Houston. He lives in the traditions of both the European Renaissance and feudal Japan and believes diverse pursuits and interests build keen minds and bodies. He is, consequently, a student of martial arts, a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and is a surfer, artist, and filmmaker. He's acted in and produced music videos as well as served as a rigger, greensman, propsman, and stunts coordinator. He also dabbles in music. Jed has worked in logistics, dog training, security, education, and other jobs, and says that he is not entirely sure he's qualified to do anything, but that he is a great respecter of fine storytelling and of the tellers of tales, and that he is very proud to contribute his narrations. He lives in the Houston Heights of Texas and likes cats and dogs, but doesn't have any, and sometimes he scribbles short, humorous movie reviews that no one reads. You can correct that last bit by stopping by his site, at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Mr. Shepler, for all your time contributing to our work here on the show. And that will be our evening, Children of the Night. Take care of each other, and come see us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.